Yeah, at the bottom of your screen, you will see a Q&A button and a chat button. If you'd like to submit a question, and we hope you do, please use the Q&A button. The chat button is only for if technical difficulties. So use the Q&A button. Uh, we have an extraordinary guest speaker today. It's 2020, so of course we're bringing you something out of the ordinary. I'd like to introduce to you Stephanie Link, our Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors. She also manages a portfolio of investments and has met with the CEO of every company in the portfolio. Stephanie is a regular contributor to CNBC, including the Halftime Report, Squawk Box, and Closing Bell. And she's a working mom. Can you say busy? So, Stephanie, thank you so very much for sharing your time and talents with these women today. Thank you so much, Gail and Karen and Contessa. Um, it's just a pleasure to be here today to talk to your clients and have a conversation uh, about a lot of different topics. I, I thought perhaps I would start with the markets overall because there's a lot going on. Um, and then we can talk a little bit about the elections and the implications. And then I will humbly talk about my experience as being a woman in the investment community uh, for the last 28 years um, and, uh, and, and how that uh, ride <laughs> has been. So um, let's talk about the economy for just a little bit. Uh, and, and again, as Gail mentioned, please feel free to ask some questions along the way and we can, we can certainly um, help in, in explaining some various different things. If, if uh, sometimes I could talk about markets for about five hours, right? So sometimes there are questions that you all might have that I can help again along the way. So, okay, so the markets. So here, here's the, let's start with the economy and then we'll go markets. So economy, very, very uneven economy, right? There is um, a lot of pros, positives, and there are a lot of negatives and how to sort it through because it seems like they're the, the, the uh, I, I really believe it seems like the press might be like a little bit more negative or at least focusing on the negative. So let's talk a little bit about the positives first and then we'll go to the negatives because it's not perfect. So first and foremost, we have uh, parts of the economy that are doing well, housing, auto, manufacturing, and parts of the consumer. So if I look at housing, Let's just start with that. We just saw 1 million SAR, seasonally adjusted annual rate. That's what SAR means, right? We just saw 1 million SAR last month in new home sales. That's the best since 2006. We have seen single family um, uh, permits and starts uh, up 20% plus year over year. I just had a company report earnings yesterday, and they said October orders were up 50%. I, I almost fell off my chair. I actually said that on TV today. I almost fell off my chair when I heard that number because I didn't even think that, that we could do better than the 20, 30, 40% we have been seeing. So housing is certainly important and it's recovering. So why do I mention housing? Because like, is it important to the economy? Yeah, it is. Actually, it's only about 10% of US GDP but there's a multiplier effect. So if you think about it, you buy a home, you gotta put stuff in the home. And 
And you probably have to put stuff outside the home to make it look nice as much as I, I, I just cannot stand to, to do that. But if it looks nice, you feel good. Um, and that's something that's very, very important. The other part of housing is auto. If you own a home, there's a very good chance, there's a high correlation, by the way, of uh, SUVs and truck sales to housing. And there's a, so there's a very good chance if you're buying a home, you're probably buying a, some sort of vehicle. And so this kind of corresponds with the numbers we've been getting in terms of the North America seasonally adjusted annual rate. Again, that SAR number sounds fancy, but all it is is sales and they're just trying to normalize it. 16.3 million in the month of September, but that's versus 7.7 million that we saw back in April. So certainly a nice recovery in auto sales. In fact, China, so that's US, China actually is up year over year. We're still down year over year because this time last year we had 17.3 million North America SAR. So we still have a ways to go, but it's very, very encouraging. Uh, and it is very important um, to the overall economy. Manufacturing. So I have done a ton of work on manufacturing. Uh, um, as I own a lot of manufacturing companies in my portfolio, but here's the thing. If you look at a lot of data points, so the durable goods up almost 2% month over month last month, we've had five straight months of non-defense capital uh, orders, capital good orders rather, expand five months in a row. So we're certainly seeing a resurgence in the manufacturing part of the economy. And I don't want to get too wonky, but I look at regional data. I look at national data because we get a lot and the government gives you a lot of stuff. And all those numbers are the best in two years. So we're definitely seeing a recovery in manufacturing. Again, why do I mention manufacturing? Because it's 12% of US GDP. And again, there is a multiplier effect as well. So for every one job in manufacturing that is created, 7.7 .7 other jobs are created. And so why are we hearing about, and we'll get to politics, but why are we hearing about um, the infrastructure kinds of packages and bills that might get passed? Why? Because we have 9 million people that are unemployed. If you wanna fix that and get that down to more appropriate levels, which we absolutely need to do, this is an easy way to fix it because you've got that multiplier effect. And then I turn to the consumer. And while I know a lot of the consumer has been helped by the fiscal and monetary policies and the stimulus that has been put in place, the, what's amazing is the, the savings rate is 14%. So people are taking the help, which they need, and they're saving it. They're not spending everything. Now, back in April, it got to 30%. Right, because that's when they all of a sudden got all the all the all the checks. Now it got to fourteen percent. The historical average for savings in this country is five percent. Five percent. So if we were to go from fourteen percent down to five, the historical average, that's a trillion dollars of consumer spending. Think about the windfall there. So that's one part. What I've been most surprised by, because I'm not actually surprised by any of these other things, because low interest rates and fiscal and monetary policies are very positive for housing, auto, manufacturing. What I'm most surprised about consumer is that consumer confidence has actually stayed remarkably high. 
certainly we dipped in May, June. That's a reflection on the prior months, right? Um, of, of March and April and people were nervous and scared and that sort of thing. But I, I believe that the consumer is starting to feel like we have, a we have a handle on the situation, we have a control on the situation. There's a lot of uncertainty about reopenings and closures and that sort of thing. And we can get into that if you all like to, but at this point, consumers have stayed resilient. And as the unemployment continues to ratchet down, that's a good thing, right? That's what we wanna see. I will say this about the consumer, forward-looking indicators, backward-looking indicators. Whenever you get the non-farm payroll numbers and the unemployment numbers, and we get them the first Friday every month, right? We get those numbers. Those are backward-looking data. The forward-looking data that you all should kind of pay attention to, which we all kind of make a big deal about on CNBC and elsewhere, are initial claims. So initial claims have actually, for, and I look at a four-week average, because every week we get this, this data every week, and it's so myopic. I'm just looking at the four-week trend, and we have recovered 60% of the jobs since the job losses since uh, March and April. So we're on our way. That's my point. We're on our way. And I think the very, very important thing is consumer, out of all the things I just mentioned, 75% of the U.S. economy. And so we want the consumer to do well. I bet you guys, maybe some of you do know this. I was shocked when I read this just even last week. Retail sales are back above the January levels. So again, Consumer resilient, big part of the economy, super important. Okay, so that's all the good stuff. Let's talk about the bad stuff. The bad stuff is we have 9 million people unemployed, as I mentioned. The bad stuff is that we have travel, leisure, hospitality in a world of hurt, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, this is the reason, though, that I strongly believe we are going to get more stimulus from the government, and it's just a matter of time. And it's just a matter of when. Is it in the is it in is it in uh, like late November December? Probably not likely. Is it more like first quarter? Probably likely. But we're going to get it. And let me just give a, a number out there so that all of you can. I find this astounding, but I want to give you guys appreciation for it. If you add up all the stimulus that has been put into place from the government and from the Fed. You add it together, that is 44% of U.S. GDP, gross domestic product, 4%, uh, sorry, 44%. That is a huge number. So let me put that into perspective for you. Back in 2008, our last financial crisis, fiscal and monetary policy, if you added it all up, was five. So you have enormous liquidity in the system. You have no, enormous stimulus in the system. And that is very, very important. There is a reason why all my life in this market, you, do, you say you don't fight the Fed. You can't fight the Fed because the liquidity is going to be there as a backstop. And every hedge fund manager that was so nervous in March and April, so, so, somehow they got on TV and they scared the living daylights out of people when you really should have been buying, right? We buy low, we sell high. And we also buy, we also buy on a dollar cost average basis because that's important. You can't time the market. No one can. As I said, I've been doing this a long time. I can't do it. 
So I, I am ha more than happy to average cost in. So let's get back to travel, leisure, hospitality. Clearly we need, th these industries need help. Um, if you look at aerospace, um, the aerospace makers, uh, their sales are down 40 to 50%. Aftermarket, which is more like service and, and upgrading and downgrading and that sort of thing, that's down 50%. We heard from a number of companies across the board in the, in the aerospace industry that had a really tough, tough time this past quarter. Leisure, um, really hard. Um, you know, you look at some of the, ho you look at some of the hospitality companies down double and, and almost triple digits in terms of volume. So clearly these industries need help and we're going to get it. As I mentioned, we're going to get fiscal. Here's the thing. Just keep in mind the the first group that I talked about, manufacturing, auto, uh, housing, consumer, is three times the size of travel, leisure, hospitality. So I'm not kind of dismissing the problems in these groups. I'm just simply saying the other parts are doing their job, more than their job, in terms of seeing a recovery. So I feel like we're on the path of a, an improvement in the economy. All this liquidity has led to a very much of a V-shaped recovery in many, many parts of the industry, uh, the economy, and that will lead to better profits or better earnings and better GDP growth next year. So everything that the Fed and, and the government have, has done so far is actually working. And we can debate and discuss various different sectors and industry parts. Um, I understand and I appreciate that very, very much. And I'm not trying to gloss over a lot of these challenges in the economy. But what I am saying is that there's a lot of this money that has gone into these companies and people and, and consumer, and it's working. And a lot of money managers, a lot of hedge fund guys and gals missed it. And so you have, here, here, here's an interesting stat of $4.8 trillion right now in money market funds, 4.8 trillion. That's versus 2.5 trillion on average. So much money came out of the market and all, onto the sidelines and people were so scared and I understand that very, very much. But the thing I've learned as an investor, there's, different, there's a very big difference between you know, Wall Street, invest, being an invest, investment person, and Main Street. So you have to, again, try to figure out how to navigate this whole situation. And by all means, you do not want to be all in in one sector, in one style, in one name. You want to have a diversification strategy because that works over the long term. And again, dollar cost average to me makes the most sense. I was very fortunate. My father uh, is in the business something like 60 years. And when I, was, uh, I got out of college and I, I had like no money to no money at all. <laughs> and he said, I don't really care if you have no money, but just take $10 a month and put it into the market, put it into an S&P 500 ETF if you want to, or find your favorite manager if you want to, or find your favorite advisors like Gail and Karen and Contessa, and they'll help you. And every month, maybe just dollar cost average. Because while I say you want to buy high, you want to buy low and sell high, sometimes that's very hard. And, and you know, if you dollar cost average, sometimes you are buying high and selling low right? But you're buying for the most part. You're investing for the long term. So those are very, very important things, I believe. 
Um, in terms of uh, the the elections, so the ele so the elections, I want to I, I want to read something to you if you don't mind. It's not long, but I I, I have the um, the luxury of having to follow the Capital Group, and it's a company that's focused on it's a research company that's focused on the elections. And while I am no expert, I just love to read data. But I thought y'all might find this interesting. If you go back to the historical performance of the S&P 500, the, the index, over the last eight decades, 18 of the 19 presidential elections, if you put $10,000 in the market, you would have made money 10 years later, no matter who won, no matter what party won. Said in a better way, in 15 of those 10 year periods, a $10,000 investment would have doubled. So to me, that simply tells me, you don't wanna really focus too much on the short term while it creates anxiety and it creates uncertainty and volatility. And we certainly saw volatility in September into October with the market falling almost 10%. Longer term, it's an opportunity. And so if I can leave you with anything, that is it. Listen to Gail, listen to Karen, listen to Contessa. These ladies know what they're doing and they're gonna help you grow your money, but also protect your money. And hopefully I can give you some, some interesting stats along, along the way. But I will say this, so right now, we think we know the answer of who won in terms of the president. Obviously we have, um, you know, President Trump is, is, is contesting some states, so we'll have to see how that goes. But it looks like we have Biden as a winner. And then we have a mixed Congress. So as an investor, not my personal opinion, is an investor, that's the best outcome. It didn't really even matter who actually won the presidency. It mattered on Congress. And if Congress is a mixed Congress, no, not a lot gets done. And... <laughs> Again, as an investor, we like gridlock because nothing gets done. We don't have any surprises. That's my point, right? We're not going to have huge tax increases. Maybe we'll have some tax increase. Sure. Okay. But we're not going to have huge tax increases, which, by the way, if President Biden and a blue wave got through and was, was uh, voted on, that would have hit S&P 500 earnings by eight to 10%. And that's why the market was concerned because everyone was starting to price in blue wave because that's what the polls were telling us. So everyone was starting to get a little nervous. Right now, we, have a, we think we have a mixed Congress. Depends on the Georgia runoff, but I think it's a very good chance we're gonna still have mixed Congress. And we have Biden maybe in. So you get little, little tax increases. You have very little regulation. Um, and you actually have two sides that want the same thing in terms of fiscal policy, because we see these poor industries struggling. And we see small and medium businesses actually closing their doors every day. And we have nine, again, third time I'm gonna say this, nine million people unemployed. Gotta fix that. So both sides agree. It's just a matter, again, of timing and also dollar amount, but we're gonna get it. That's a good thing. Um, in terms of what to do in terms of investments. I'm going to leave that to your wonderful team of advisors uh, and let them organize for you the diversification strategy. But certainly do not panic. 
if you wanted to have a couple of different things to play around with, which I'm not a certain that you want to do, quite frankly, if, if you look at Biden, it's very, actually very, very good. Biden with a mixed Congress, that was the best case scenario. And that's just good for stocks. Because again, not a lot's going to get done. Earnings will be intact. And the, the, the stresses for corporate America won't be as severe versus the blue wave. Um, I do think people are over are underestimating rather Biden's uh, thoughts and policies on China. I think they think he's going to be much easier. And of course, you know, we may not get the daily tweets like we did with Trump. I don't think he's as easy on China as people expect, but I think that's fine because companies have been focused on moving their supply chains away from China for the last two years. So that's where he wants because he wants to get the supply chains back to the states. Fine, but they're already doing that. So while I think people are underestimating, you know, his resolve against China, I don't think it will be nearly as severe for sure. Uh, you can certainly play around with clean energy. You can play around with infrastructure stocks. Um, you can play around with healthcare, um, like not wanting to be involved with a, with a pharmaceutical company because there's very strict price controls that both sides really actually want very much. But healthcare services. I think um, the public option is off the table. I think it's more just refining the ACA. So I think as, a, as an investor, that's why the market was up so much this week. Um, we can talk about styles, value versus growth. I don't want to get too in the weeds and I want to just mention value had the best day it's had in over seven decades relative to growth on Monday. Fine, all well and good, but guess what? Growth is still outperforming value by 30 times. So we wanna have a, a combination. Why do we wanna have a combination? We wanna have a combination of growth stock, secular growth, because you have wonderful, total addressable market opportunities for technologies, companies. You have, everybody, you know, everyone knows AI. AI is, is predicted to be a $1 trillion total addressable market by the end of the century. Cloud, SaaS cloud, a trillion dollar total addressable market by the end of the decade. Retail e-commerce was a $3.9 trillion total addressable market last year, going to 7 trillion by 2025. These are huge, huge numbers that you wanna have exposure in and you, you want to participate. So you wanna have Definitely secular growth. And we can talk about a lot of different total addressable markets, but those are the three I want to give you the examples for. Then the, on the flip side, if you believe, like I do, that all this stimulus is leading to better economic growth, leading to better profits, you want to have economically sensitive companies in your portfolio because you have the operating leverage. These companies have cut costs dramatically over the last year and two. And now, if you just see a little bit of revenue growth, and lean cost structure, that's what operating leverage is. So you wanna have a combination. You don't wanna get caught up in styles. You, you just, again, listen to the team that is advising you. They know exactly what they're doing. So let me just uh, pivot, because I don't wanna take too much more time on um, kind, of, kind of my story. And I, I would just simply say that um, I'm proud uh, of, of uh, all the women out there. I'm proud of this team, this advisor team, and I'm proud of a lot of Hightower 
teams of, of women that have worked so hard that have been in the business longer than I have and had much hard, harder obstacles to overcome. I will tell you when I uh, started in the business, I was on a, started as an institutional salesperson. Uh, well, I was an assistant, of course, right out of college. Didn't even know what that was, quite frankly. And uh, I was on a trading floor of 500 men and three women. And this might make you laugh a little bit, but we weren't able to wear pantsuits. We couldn't even wear sleeveless in the summer and we had to wear stockings in the summer. So my goodness, like crazy, crazy times, right? Went with the flow, kept my head down. I will just simply tell you that I had such an amazing experience because I had people that I've worked with that were my mentors. And I think it's extremely important to find mentors. Now, these two mentors that I had, they were in the business, and they were men, two 50-year-old men. It was like, they were like my second and third father. They wanted to see me succeed. I was so fortunate. And so they helped, not only every day in the coaching and the teaching and the learning of the business, but also of like where, the pro, where my progress could go. What kind of options did I have? And it's sort of funny because we all laugh and I still stay in touch with them all these years later. And I still, we still laugh because I'm like, you had no idea I was going to be at Hightower as a chief investment strategist 28 years ago. And we laugh and we have a great time. But here's the thing. You put your head down, you work hard, you be a good listener, uh, and you try to be differentiated. And for me, I came in early. I was the early. I was turning the lights on and I would leave with the lights off. In this day and age with technology, I don't necessarily need to think you need to do that, but we physically can't. You got to work hard, but work smart. And it just takes time and you have to have patience. And I was not afraid to ask questions that I thought were kind of dumb. By the way, I still ask questions to the CEOs of companies. As Gail mentioned, I, I have met every CEO in my portfolio and I have 50 companies that I own, stocks. And I ask them dumb questions all the time, but if they're not dumb questions, because there's no dumb question. And so I ask all right, my advisor, my husband's in the business too. I ask him. It, it is not a bad thing to ask questions. It's not a bad thing to read and learn and try your hardest. My mom was a teacher, um, and she too for about 50 years, not, not as long as my father, but uh, she used to like to uh, read the Wall Street Journal, which who even knew when I was growing up what even that was, but she taught me like, eh, it's fun to learn. It's fun to read. It's fun to ask questions. And it's fun to succeed. And we can all be a success, all of us, in whatever that measure is for you and for me and for Gail and for Karen and for Contessa and the team. Um, they are super bright. And I am honored to, to work with them. And I'm honored to help you in any way that I can. Uh, and so I'm going to leave it at that. And I think I have like actually three minutes to spare, but I figured... Let's see if there's any questions. And if there are, that's great. If there's not, that's okay too. It's just been a pleasure to, to speak with all of you and to hopefully help give you some confidence and inspiration. Um, you're not alone. Um, I think reading and reading books and reading magazines and reading um, uh, some, some very important publications has always helped. You have to have patience in yourself and you have to have trust in yourself that you can do it. So Gail, I'm going to hand it back to you, or Contessa, or Karen. <laughs> <laughs> 
We will all join at this point. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for your expertise and your everything that you know about the business and sharing that with our clients and our, um, our friends that are here with us today. We do have some questions and I'd like to encourage everyone that if you still have questions that you haven't entered into the Q&A, that you can do so now. You'll see a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen where you can just type in whatever it is that you'd like answered. We'll start with the first question being last week, um, as you may know, CVS Health named Karen Lynch as CEO. Um, she joins 39 other women on a largely male-dominated Fortune 500 CEO list. What do you think a woman brings to the table that's different when leading a company? Oh, that's, that's like not even when leading a company. A fabulous question, by the way. But that's not even like just running a company. That's just like investing in general. First and foremost, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of kid around a little bit and say men are bad multitaskers. Women are better. Kidding. Totally kidding. I mean, it, everything is different. Every, every situation and circumstance. But I say this to my husband all the time. Um, I do think women have, um, maybe they are better multitaskers. Maybe. Contessa, but you know what? At the same time, I think women are good listeners. You've got to be a good listener and just step back. What do people want? What are they interested in? What are they stressed about? What are they, what are they, what are they happy about? What do they want more of? What do they want to see in the long term? What about ESG and the importance of ESG and how many women have focused and by the way, this is a stat. There are many more women versus men investors that are focused on ESG. So it's okay. You know, men are focused on other things. But I would say as a leader, the most important thing is really to be a good listener and to be a good, to, to, to execute well. To listen and then deliver. Under promise, over deliver. That's the best combination ever. As an investor, that's what I want. I want someone that's going to say, eh, no, no, I'm going to sandbag it. Perfect example, Carol Tomei at UPS. She was at Home Depot for 15 years. Really superstar CFO. She left to go to UPS. So she goes on the conference call two quarters ago, not this past quarter, two quarters ago. Says, yeah, I think maybe there's some cost cutting that we can do. Lo and behold, they beat their cost cutting measures by sixfold this past quarter. So, and I say to myself, well, she... She's understanding the business. She's learning the business. She's kind of keeping expectations low and she wants to grow the business. And so I think in a very environmentally good way, I mean, that's important because that's really growing in importance. ESG has never been more important than now. And I think it's only going to get more important. And so having some sort of exposure or an overlay, and that's what we're kind of trying to do in my division, in my portfolio, is have, okay, I can pick fundamental stocks, but then to have an ESG overlay, it's a wonderful combination because when I was at Nuveen, I did a lot of work on it and the performance is actually even that much better when you have that overlay. So I think, I think women bring a lot to the table you have to have guts and courage and a little bit of a thick skin. And uh, when I first started on Wall Street, I didn't have a thick skin. I don't think I said anything to anybody for six months. And then all of a sudden it happened, you know? So you gotta have confidence, but confidence comes in time, right? So um, find proven winners in, in women and in men. I don't wanna bash the men, right? Cause there are some amazing, amazing CEOs and, and leaders. And as I said, 
the two men that taught me the business, I, I am in, in total gratitude. Uh, and, um, and by the way, they're now retired, having a grand old time watching me on TV. And I just call them every <laughs> once in a while and they bother me and they're tweeting me while I'm on TV. I'm like, leave me alone. But they are really, I've been very, very fortunate. And, um, and so as a result, by the way, I try very, very hard to be a mentor to anyone that asks or anyone that wants or has a desire. It's all about teamwork. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. I have a quick follow-up to that. I'm curious, um, you know, you spoke of the percentage of women as investors and you know, we're all aware of the tremendous impact, particularly on women uh, across the, the economy and, and workers in general, but particularly on women with children who can't be in daycare, can't be in school, um, and some women can work remotely and others are having to drop out of the workforce altogether. So I'm curious what you see to be the long-term impact on women as investors, but also women make up such a huge percentage, women uh, workers of the GDP globally. Uh, and what, what do you see to be sort of the time, you know, span duration for a rebound from that and just the long-term impact? It's so hard because, and such a good question and almost an impossible question to answer because there's so much going on right now there's so much going on in the macro world. There's so much going on in diversity and inclusion. There's so much going on, as I mentioned before, in ESG. And while I think uh, men are wonderful dads and parents and that sort of thing, I think, I think women take on this enormous responsibility of kind of trying to do it all. Um, and it's hard. It's hard. You need help. I mean, look, I, I think... It takes a village, right? Did Hillary Clinton say this? And I could, when she said it, I was like, I don't know, 14 years old, kidding. Uh, but I was young and I didn't understand it. And I was like, what do you mean it takes a village? Are you kidding? You need help. You need help. You need friends. I mean, right now, just as an example, I am hosting my daughter's good friend at my house because they're quarantined because of school, um, because so, so that her mom can go to work, right? And she's a school teacher. And so it's like, We've got to all work together and it's not going to happen overnight. And I do think that the, one of the good things about this whole travesty of COVID is that we have learned to work differently, to work smarter, to work. So, okay, if you have to stay home, we got this. Look at this wonderful connection we have. We've never even met before. And all of a sudden, like, now we have this connection. I never met the CEO of our company. He hired me without even meeting me in person, and we did these Zoom things. So I think technology is going to play a very big, important role. I think patience are, is also going to be important from senior leadership to say, okay, you can't do it all. You're trying to do it all, and you're trying to do it on the damn computer. So like, let's try to at least open our minds and see what people can do to the best of their ability, and I think the technology is going to help us. And so when I say, like, honestly, I, we, we were told earlier this week, we're probably not even going to think about going back to the office until maybe first end of first quarter of next year. Okay, so what? We're still doing our job. We're still delivering the numbers. And you know what? I have to say, there are ways to be creative. There are ways, Karen, to be creative in terms of going the extra mile. Is that an extra email? 
is that like an extra uh, uh, deck, uh, a PowerPoint deck that you put out for and to try to help? Is that being more proactive in what you do, thinking creatively? It doesn't matter if you're a person. It matters that you're making the effort and you're actually producing the results. And so I don't think women, I hope that women aren't discouraged. And I know some, so many are. But I think use technology to your advantage because, and also let's educate the senior leadership. And I know we spend an enormous amount of time as to how do we educate people to say, it doesn't matter if she's the first one in and the last one out. That was my generation. It's okay, fine, we'll figure it out. But who's the first on, on Zoom? I don't know, who cares? I can't connect to Zoom half the time anyway, but it's like, you know, like let's just make the effort and let's figure it out and be creative because women can be very creative. And that makes me very, very proud. Thank Wonderful. you. We have a couple of questions relating to the new administration. Um, first being, how do you see the housing and auto interest rates doing with the new administration? And the second part of the question is, what do you expect about the inheritance cap? Yeah, so uh, on housing and auto, low interest rates are very powerful. We're at unprecedented rates. We got the Fed buying every single day. <laughs> so, it's, so even though rates are starting to creep higher, they're creeping higher for a good reason, by the way. They're creeping higher because economic data is getting a little bit better. It's all these things that we talked about, these segments in the economy. Um, I think if rates stay low, companies have done an, an amazing job at cutting costs and being really lean. They had to. They had no choice, unfortunately. And that's layoffs, and that's very much disappointing on the one hand. But on the other hand, these companies know what they need to do to survive, to, to improve and increase their liquidity so that they can afford to run their operations and their businesses. But I got to tell you something. I had, as I mentioned earlier on housing, so I own this company. I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to mention it for compliance reasons. Otherwise I would, but I've talked about it on CNBC. In fact, today, so go back and you can look at the link. Um, but there's this one company, 66% of their closings are um, new homes, new homes, new home sales, starter homes. Right, that's 66 percent of their closings is new starter homes, and those numbers were up double digits in the past quarter. And then they, and then all of a sudden, the CEO says, as I mentioned before, October orders were up fifty percent, and I literally fell off my chair. I was like, fifty percent? You gotta be kidding me! So here's the thing: it's not just people leaving because of COVID. People are leaving the city to go to the suburbs. We get that, right? We understand that makes all the sense in the world. That's gonna, re that's gonna mean revert over some time when we get the vaccine. So I'm not counting on that continuing at this particular level, this rate, this rate of growth. But there's also a big factor of millennials now starting to buy. Millennials are leaving the homes because interest rates are so low. Affordability is a mix, but on the starter home side, it's actually better than on the medium and higher end where prices have gone sky high. But on the starter homes, it is affordable, you have low interest rates, and you have people wanting to leave where they are and out of the apartments, and they want a little land so they can have their dog. And oh, by the way, they're having many dogs. Everybody's adopting dogs, I mean, and cats, and animals, and pets. And that's the other theme I love. I love animal health, love it. Because I can see it, I can see it around my neighborhood, I can hear it. I, see it. I saw a chart today, it was like, a $75 billion total addressable market by the end of 2022. I'm like, whoa, I know I'm doing my part. 
I know I'm doing my part. I'm on Chewy. <laughs> and, I'm a, and, you know, I'm, I'm getting all this stuff. So um, that's another part of the housing thing. And that was the whole reason why I was saying that there's this multiplier effect. Again, if you think and you believe in housing, and it will not stay this strong, but it's going to stay solid, then you have autos, you have pent-up demand, and it's all of that combined together. And so I do think it's still an invest there's a investable areas. My, my only concern is that some stocks are off the charts, right? Like some stocks have been up so much, triple digits. So you just gotta be careful of Main Street and then Wall Street. Because sometimes stocks price in, they usually do, six to eight months ahead of time, right? It's a forward-looking indicator. So you just gotta be really careful on valuations picking quality companies, balance sheets, and that sort of thing. Um, but the themes, I think, make a lot of sense. So I know there was another question. What was the other question, Knessa? The second question was um, the inheritance cap. Do you uh, think that's going to change? I don't think that that's what, I don't think, A, I don't think that that's what Biden, he's got a laundry list of stuff. Um, now, look, if it was a blue wave, it could, mm -hmm. right? And, and cap gains is even more of a concern if it's a blue wave and if Georgia reverses. Um, so I just think his, his focus is so different. It is on certain tax increases. It is on improving relations. It is on the Paris Accord. It is on healthcare. So I don't necessarily think inheritance tax is like super priority. And even within, even within tax, there's like five other things ahead of it. It's something to watch. I'm no expert. But I, I think if I look at what he needs to get done, and usually a president with a mixed Congress gets about two things done. They got two initiatives. And they're big initiatives, and they get done. But that's about all that Congress has, like, the attention span of, which is sad to say. But that's, that's what it is from an investment point of view, I've, I've learned over the years. I mean, I want more to be done. We all want more to be done, right? But it's out of our control. Karen, did you have another burning question? Um, I did, and I think also um, one question that I saw in the Q&A that's probably a, a good and fun one for everyone, Stephanie, do you have a suggested reading list for someone who's new to investing? I think especially for our, our next generation and uh, investors, it's a great question. Oh, I love that question. I love that question. I got about 20 books behind me here, by the way, if, if you can't see, but... So number one, when I first started out, I couldn't understand what Barron's was saying. Not one paragraph, not one story. I had no idea what I was doing. My husband and I would go, we lived in Hoboken, New Jersey at the time. We would go to this park, sit out in the sun, because at the time we didn't really care about getting sunburned. So we would sit out there and read Barron's and I'd be like, what does this mean? And he'd be like, what does this mean? And the two of us would go back and forth and it was very humbling. Over, over the years, you learn. That's how you get perspective. Um, Barron's is absolutely one I would read because I do think if I look at it versus other publications, at least newspapers, and by the way, I'm a hard paper newspaper person. I like to get my, my hands dirty still, but Barron's makes it so easy to go online. But it's very thoughtful. It's not opinionated, but it's also idea generated too. Um, so I, I like that. Um, but the book, my favorite book, this is going to show my age. Um, so the old CEO of Intel, two CEOs ago, he wrote a book, Only the Paranoid Survive. Andy Grove was the CEO, it was a long time ago. 
and why I like it, not so much like about Intel, because that wasn't, I didn't carry here nor there. What I liked about it was he, he was just simply saying, I'm the CEO of the biggest company, one of the biggest semiconductors companies in the world, and I'm nervous every day. And I'm constantly staying on top of things because I'm nervous every day. I want to make sure things go right. And I want to have checks and balances. And I want to have all kinds of plans in place and all kinds of alternatives. If something goes wrong, then I want this. And it just was the humility, I thought, was really very interesting because I didn't know him from, from anything. But it was just a lesson on, you know, the markets do keep us humble. I might recommend something on TV and look like a fool the next day, but I, I don't go out and gloat when I get things right. And so it's um, something that I, I enjoyed as a business person, but I, and also as an, in, and also as an investor, um, because that's, you kind of have to, in order to buy low and sell high, Karen, you know this just as well as I do. It's, you got to stay not, not unemotional. And when you get emotional is when you do all silly stuff. Right. And it's the same thing with wealth management. All of a sudden, what are you going to do? You're going to go all into cash or all into equities or all into fixed income or all for this and that. No, got to stay balanced. And that was a good, that was a good book for, for me to just understand markets. Personal is a different story, but on the professional side, that's what I would suggest. That's great. And Karen, I know that um, we had discussed another question. I'm sorry, I didn't save it in my notes here. Um, it was a, another next-gen question that I think would be a good follow-up to this. Yeah, I think, Stephanie, you commented on this a bit earlier, uh, which I really appreciated just in terms of um, your your dad and what he taught you and, and that $10 uh, and dollar cost averaging. But what do you think is, uh, you know, we represent a number of families and, um, you know, what do you think is the most important thing uh, that parents can do and families can do to pass on to the next generation about investing? That's a, another such a great question. So thoughtful, you guys. Um, I uh, have a 13-year-old. So you're going to know about all my family by the end of this call, right? You're going to have everybody. I just should send you pictures, right? So I have a 13-year-old and I, I don't think she really wants to get into the business. However, when she was five, I used to have, this is when I was working with Jim Cramer, I had my computer on all the time, which I still do, but the, but the screen was always on. So the equity side of things was always, and she would say, mom, A, why is this always open? And B, what are the green and red flashing lights? And I said, well, we want more green than red. And she's like, but what does it even mean? And I said, what do you, what, what do you like to do, honey? And she said, well, I love, you know, I love all kinds of Microsoft games. I love, I'm on Google all the time. I want to have makeup. So I'm on Estee Lauder, not necessarily Estee Lauder, but it's, it's almost like a subdivision within it. So I said, okay, so all these things, do me this favor. Give me five names. What do you do? What do you like and why? So she picks five names. Her, and I give, we gave her um, $5,000 and said five names. Every year you get it and you get to invest in what you want to invest. And it is almost like the Peter Lynch investing method. And you guys remember Peter Lynch. He was one of the very best investors of all time at Fidelity. And he used to say, invest in what you know. And so she's investing what she, what she knows and she's got better performance than I do. It's crazy. It's like, it's great. She's very interested and very involved. So it's kind of a fun, you know, tongue in cheek kind of, kind of comment and answer. But the point of it is, is get the, get the kids thinking about this early, early, 
My dad did it early and I didn't understand half the things he was saying, but I'm thankful that he did because it really did make a lot of sense. And you don't have to pick stocks, not like my daughter. I mean, I'm just an equity junkie. And so she is now too, but it's investing. It's thinking about, you have some money, how do you build it? Because compound investing is so powerful. Dividends, dividend growth is so important. And especially in an environment where fixed income, the yields, the dividend yields that we're getting, excuse me, the yields rather that we're getting are so low. So how do you do that? And so I'm having conversations with other advisor teams like we've had, like, like we all have had, is this 60, 40 portfolio? Does that even make any sense anymore? Meaning 60% equities, 40% bonds, like not with a 10 year below 1%. So what do you need to do to create some income, some, some safety? So like you guys can sleep at night and your clients can sleep at night. Yeah, you want to own, definitely you want to own 60% of equities, I think, unless, you know, you're getting older and you have a different requirement. But for the most part, early on for the kids, 60% good, maybe even 70%. And then that other piece is a little bit of bonds, but then maybe some equity-like bonds. You know, there are some sectors that have really high dividend yields, good quality balance sheets, but you know what? they're not going to see a lot of appreciation in the stock price. It's just going to be a boring sitting there all day long, but you can clip a four or 5% dividend yield. Well, I'd take that. I can only get a 1% on the 10 year, right? So I think there's all kinds of ways you can be creative, but I think trying to teach kids the importance and families in general, the importance of, of, of appreciation, of savings, diversification. And again, do you want to swing for the fences? Like Robin Hood? No, that's not me. That might be you guys. That's not you guys either. But you want to you go Robin Hood? Go for it. Fine. You could have a little bit of play money, by the way. You could have a 5% and play around a little bit. That should not be a big part of your portfolio if you, if you really do want to accumulate wealth over time. Uh, one of our clients asked if you see uh, uh, or expect a correction uh, in real estate. And, you know, we certainly uh, watch commercial real estate, um, but curious what your thoughts are there. I worry about real estate in the cities. I, will, I worry about real estate in corporations like ourselves. Are we going to go and buy a whole new plan in terms of, uh, in fact, we, 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 we changed. We were about to renew our lease in New York City, Hightower was about to change places and then re no, we, we kind of canceled that too. So I think uh, corporate uh, real estate is at risk. I think real estate definitely is at risk. Um, I don't know if we're going to change forever the way we, we go out and, and, and buy things. I mean, I think there is some fun to going to a store, but can we, can we just do it online instead? Like I think, we, I, think, I think we're changing a bit, right? I think it's not... There are certain companies that'll do just fine because they're like the treasure, you know, like the, the treasure cove of when you go into a store and you find something um, like the off-price retailers. I think they'll come back kind of thing because people love a bargain and they and you can't get a bargain on, I mean, you can get a bargain online, but you really get a fun time and experience when you go and you experience that. But I just feel like technology has made it too easy for us on the, on the retail side. So I worry on those two areas in particular very, very much. I do. I would not have exposure there. I don't care how high those dividend yields are. Remember, 
even if you have a high dividend yield, it doesn't necessarily mean that dividend is covered, right? So it's like, oh, great, it's yielding 9%. What are you kidding me? That's to me a yellow flag, a big yellow flag, right? Like four or 5%. Here's what I've said um, on the dividend side of things, kind of going off a little tangent, but what I have learned in my career is when you find blue chip companies with good balance sheets and liquidity, liquidity is key, and really, really good management teams that know what they're doing and have proven to be a good execution um, strategists. When those kind of companies fall, and they did in March, because every, everybody sold everything. And when those kind of companies fall to a 4% kind of yield, four is to me a magic number, right? Because two, three, meh, all right, fine, I, that's fine. But four is like, whoa, six, seven, eight, that's a red flag, as we, a yellow flag like we just talked about. But what I call them is accidentally high yielders. These are quality companies that all of a sudden the stock prices have fallen so much, but their dividend yields have gone up. 4% is the number. Much more than that, you got to do a lot more homework kind of thing. And so um, the same goes for real estate, same goes for REITs. Uh, I'd be very, very selective on where you are investing. Sure, you want to take a flyer in something, go for it. But I don't know, long term, it's more of a headache. We want stocks and companies and investments that, that help us for the long run, and we don't have to worry so much. We're always going to worry, but we don't have to worry so much. Great. Well, I think we have time for probably one or two more questions. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned earlier, Stephanie, about ESG investing, and Naveen, you mentioned specifically how um, it performs better oftentimes. Yes. Can you explain ESG investing for, for our clients that don't know what that is? Sure. I mean, it's really social, socially responsible investing. That's the way I view it. Like, it's almost, it's sort of funny. I look at my portfolio and I'm about 95% compliant. And I don't even really even have an ESG overlay yet, just yet, because we're working on it. But it's just common sense. It's what I believe in. It's what you believe in. It's what Gail believes in and what Karen believes in. And it's almost like we all have different definitions. What do we think is important? What do we think is good for the long term? So, while I worked very, very, uh, very hard on ESG and had as a complement to fundamental analysis is because it, the, the, the numbers are really amazing. It's about, if you look at the S&P 500, if you had done over the last 10 years, if you had done ESG investing with fundamental analysis, that combination outperforms the benchmark by 150 basis points. And it's also 100 basis points more than just the fundamental research being done. So it is very, very important. But again, it, it's, what do you, what do you believe in? What do you, how do you, how, do you, how, how strongly do you feel about, about energy and fossil fuels and, and how, and how strongly do you feel about tobacco usage and health and wellness? Um, how do you feel about companies that are using chemicals uh, in, in their companies and, and not focusing more on safety uh, and the betterment for our, our, our country, our economy, our people. So everybody has a different definition of ESG. I look at it as social responsibility. That's the way I look at it. Um, that's, you know, cause I don't want to get caught up in environmental, social governance. Like I just want to, what do I feel good about? But I do know if you have an overlay, it does work and it's important. And so for our department and OCIO, we're working very hardly hard at trying to find a company that um, that can help us screen and then we can make some educated decisions. 
Great. Well, I think this was a fantastic dialogue. Thank you so much once again. And um, Karen, I'll finish us off. Thank you, Contessa. Uh, and thank you, Stephanie. This was an incredibly engaging and insightful presentation. And I have so many more questions I might send to you and we'll continue to watch your market minute every week. Um, our firm can make the proud, and you talked about this really still rare claim of having a team of more than 50% women. And we have a high percentage of female clients as well, many of whom have joined us today. Um, we are so appreciative, therefore, of your journey to this point in your career, hearing about your mentors, uh, as well as the impact of women investors on the markets uh, and the pandemic here on women globally and in the U.S. And we want to thank you again. I understand how much busier you must be right now. Um, so thank you for taking time out of your schedule to meet with us and our clients. Um, and Gail, thank you for this wonderful tradition that you started 20 years ago of bringing your women clients together. I have heard so many clients comment over the last couple of years on how much they've learned, but also just how much they enjoyed getting to know one another at these events. Um, and as always, this year is no different even virtually. You created such a wonderful space for women to become more confident as investors. Um, and Stephanie spoke of her mentors, and Gail, I wanna acknowledge what an incredible mentor you've been to me and the entire team, um, constantly positive and encouraging. There is no dumb question that we can ask um, and we're grateful to you. And then to our clients, we recorded the webinar today and we'll be sending out the link by the end of the week. We thank you so much for joining us, for your continued faith in us. And we also want to acknowledge uh, and express our gratitude on this Veterans Day to all current and former members of the armed services who've served our country with courage and honor. And we are infinitely grateful for each and every one of you. And as we go into the holidays, we wish you all a safe and happy holiday season. We miss seeing you face to face and we send a virtual hug from everyone here at the Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye, everyone.